Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. As always, I'm your host, Jennifer Frey. I'm an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I'm also a fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. The IHE underwrites this podcast, and I'm very grateful for their ongoing support. To learn more about the IHE and all of the wonderful work that they do, please go to their website, ihe.catholic.edu. In this episode, I am joined by Russ Hintinger, professor of philosophy at the Catholic University of America, and we discuss books one through five of St. Augustine's Confessions. So this is the first of a three-part series that I have with Russ on this very famous book. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I'm really excited this morning to be joined by my colleague and friend, Russ Hentinger. Uh, Russ is currently a research professor in the School of Philosophy at the Catholic University of America and a senior fellow at the Institute for Human Ecology. He is co-director of the program and Catholic political thought there. Welcome to the podcast, Russ. Hey, it's good to see you, Jennifer. Yeah, I've I've been wanting to do this podcast for a long time, so I am like giddy with excitement that we are finally going to be talking about Augustine's Confessions, which is a book that basically changed my life the first time that I read it when I was 18. I had no idea the impact that this book was going to have on me. Also wasn't sure that I really understood it beyond the fact that when I put it down, I was very definitely a different person than when I picked it up. So I'm excited to go through this with you. We are not going to take on the insane task of trying to get through the entire confessions in one episode. We're going to see, well, I don't know. Let's see how it goes. It might be two. It might be three. We'll see how this conversation progresses, but I'm super excited about it. And before we launch into all of that, though, I did want to invite you to say something about this program in Catholic political thought that you're doing at CUA, because I take it this is a new venture. I'm not sure that I really understand it, but at any rate, I think my listeners will be interested. Yes, I, I am a, a research professor ordinarius in the School of Philosophy at Catholic University where I actually used to teach 30 years ago, so I'm back. And one of the things that's happened in more recent years is the foundation of the Institute for Human Ecology, which yes. is headed which by... Which underwrites, underwrites this podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it is headed by Professor Joe Capizzi, who is a moral theologian in the School of Theology. And it has several different kinds of programs that it both runs and sponsors. But one of the tasks is to create a program in Catholic political thought that's multidisciplinary. That is, teaches at the graduate level, 
but does not constitute its own department, but would oversee master's thesis and PhDs, whether in history or political science or in the various sectors of theology, philosophy, and even law. So that's a very complicated task in a university because it's very difficult to get programs and departments and schools to cooperate in something interdisciplinary, but I think we're well on the road to pulling this off. I I should point out, I don't think in the entire Catholic world, that is the world, there, there is such a program. Yeah, so are you are you accepting your own students or are you just a program that any student who's in philosophy or theology or political theory can kind of get taken up into you ha- ha- just structurally? It, structurally, it will have to work where there is a cooperation between the program and degree granting departments. Right. I think that's that that that's always the case. You can be, for example, a kind of fellow in the Institute for Human Ecology and the Catholic uh, Political Thought, mm-hmm. while being a student in, let's say, philosophy or theology or some other discipline. Right. But of course, it's it's those departments and schools that do the degree granting. Right. Yeah. Right. Excellent. Okay. Well, I will put a link to the program up in the show notes, but let's, let's talk about St. Augustine. And just for the purposes of getting into the confessions, I just want to ask the basic question, right? Who was he? What's important to know about St. Augustine in advance of reading the confessions, both in terms of who he was and his historical context, but also what his influence has been for the Western intellectual tradition? Well, St. Augustine is, well, surely the the greatest, certainly the most widely read of all of the Latin church fathers. He was he was born in 354 AD in Roman North Africa. I believe the province of his little town that he grew up in was the province of Numidia, a little town called Tagast, and not that far from the Mediterranean, but the big town would have been Hippo Regis, just a little bit to the north and the east that was on the Mediterranean that was an important Roman naval port, and just to the east of it is Carthage. By the way, today, Hippo Regis and Augustine's hometown are in the country, the state of Algeria. Mm -hmm. When Augustine was born in 354, this was an extraordinarily prosperous part of the Roman Empire. Much of North Africa had been turned into uh, the American Midwest, rolling hills and farms. (laughs) It, It was rich in grain. And you get rich in grain, you become rich in shipping. I mean, it banks, big cities, all of that flows from about a century before Augustine was born, a lot of investment by Rome in that territory where he was born. So he was born into a 
not a prosperous, but at least a kind of middle-class family. His mm -hmm. father sat on the city council. His mother, Monica, the famous Saint Monica. Parents had enough money to send him to school. First to a little grammar school north of where they lived, and then to the big city in Carthage. Right. But he's he's brought up really at the peak of what it meant to be a Roman citizen. It was generally an era of peace, although that was that will begin to decline during his lifetime. It was peace and prosperity. And he was finally educated. He is born in a Christian family, but not baptized right away. Was his dad Christian? Became Christian. His father, okay. Patricius. Yeah. yeah. Patrick. His father's name was Patrick. And he, his main education as, as a boy, as an adolescent, was to learn how to become a rhetorician. That is to learn grammar, which is the study of words and logic. Let's say the interconnection between these words and how to draw inference and so forth, and rhetoric. It's, it was all meant to culminate in rhetoric that allowed you to stand up in a public square without a microphone and convince your fellow citizens. Yeah, I mean, he was educated like a pagan, correct? Correct. Right. And, I mean, so he's kind of a young man from the provinces. I mean, how, how at some point, he goes to Rome, goes to Milan, then goes to Rome, right? Yes, but in a way, surprisingly late. He's into the beginning of his Middle Ages before he goes to Rome. Yeah, his first big city experience is, is Carthage. And it's in Carthage that he really is kind of groomed to be a public rhetorician in the high Roman style. And he only later does he get an invitation to go first to Rome to teach in a prep school, basically a prep school. Mm -hmm. And while there, he gets an invitation to become master of imperial rhetoric in Milan, which would be like having the best endowed chair in the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, I mean, we're we're going to kind of go through the basics of his biography as we go through the confessions, but obviously at some point he becomes a bishop. Not by choice, of course. M m most people who ended up <laughs> as bishops it was not a not a matter of personal ambition, but he ends up bishop of Hippo. At what point does he write the confessions and why does he write it? His, his conversion and baptism around 387, I think he, he takes the order of baptism in Milan from St. Ambrose, and he finds his way back to North Africa around 390, 391, and he, his intention was to found a monastery. In, in Hippo, Hippo Regius. 
Um, he, he eventually does do that, which we inherit as the rule of St. Augustine. I mean, the rule that's the foundation of the Dominican order is the rule of St. Augustine. But almost as soon as he gets to Hippo Regis, he's recognized for being quite a catch for the church. And he is made a priest. And soon after his ordination, maybe three or four years, he's consecrated successor bishop of Hippo. And it's during this time he's writing the confessions. So let's say the confessions start about when he arrives back in North Africa, 391, but they're finished by 401. Sorry, what year does he become bishop? He becomes kind of a coadjutor bishop with right of succession, 395. So shortly after that, he becomes full bishop of Hippo Regis, which was the major port on that side of the Mediterranean. It was a very important sea, and Mm -hmm. he would have been responsible for many, many parishes in the hinterland Mm -hmm. where he had to go on sort of mission preaching tours all the Mm -hmm. way over to all the way over to what is now Tunisia. Mm -hmm. So it takes him 10 years to write the confessions. Who's he writing it for? Okay. First thing to know about the confessions is that from the first sentence to the last sentence, it's a continuous prayer. This is what makes the book very odd to read, because he's not talking to us, he's talking to God. He's talking to God about himself, first of all, about his being brought by God to to a conversion. But it's a continuous prayer And it's so effective that once you begin reading, you can almost entirely forget two or three chapters into book one that it's all praying. Right. Yeah, I think, you know, people will say it's a memoir or uh, it's an autobiography. And I'm just like, well, it's a very weird kind of memoir or autobiography. I mean, what do you say to someone who wants to put it in that genre? Well, it is autobiographical in this sense. He he later says, after he's finished the confessions, that the first 10 books can be characterized de me, that is, about me. The last three books are De Scripturis, about God speaking through Scripture. But that's not entirely accurate, and that that is not an accurate guide to this, because when he talks about himself, the whole thing is done as a long, long riff on Luke 15's parable of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. Once you see the prodigal son at work from the very first book of the Confessions, You'll see it on almost every page, either directly cited and quoted or paraphrased or referred to. So Mm -hmm. it's not just about him. It's about what God is doing to him. Mm -hmm. Right. But it is in a chronological order. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And 
I mean, but when he's writing it, well, we can we can kind of talk about the last the last bits of the confessions, which are quite different <laughs> from the first ten books, uh, or really the first nine books, I guess. But I mean, you said it's this long prayer. Is it? I mean, but again, my question is like, what was he setting out to write? You know, you might think, okay, it's a prayer journal, you know, that's a genre that we might pick out, or it's something closer to a diary. But that, that doesn't seem to make sense of the whole. And I'm just wondering if we have any evidence either way of why, who's he writing it for? I mean, who does he take his audience to be? Okay, I got that question. It and and it deserves a secular answer. <laughs> so by the time Augustine is in Milan, remember we're winding the clock back to before three eighty seven, when he was baptized. He was already well known. He was he was a master of imperial rhetoric in what was virtually the western capital of the Roman Empire by then was not old Rome, but it was Milan. Okay, mm-hmm. and a student, so to speak, of St. Ambrose. He was already pretty famous. Mm-hmm. And if you read his account of his life in Milan in uh, the end of book five, but in six and seven, he's dropping all sorts of names of famous people mm-hmm. that he knows. He's part of an intellectual group of people that were some of whom are Catholic, some of whom are trying to be Catholic. Some of them are Neoplatonists, but no, he's hanging out with the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. Okay, so by the time he's baptized, everyone knows who he is. Mm-hmm. And when this is what happens in the ten years after baptism, on right to finishing, on route to finishing the confessions. Why does he write it? Well, he's famous enough. He has to set the story straight because he's going back to North Africa to found a monastery. And there's whisperings, well, more than whisperings. Augustine used to be a Manichaean. We can talk well, about the Manichaean. Well, the well Man- which is true, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, maybe he still is. I see. And maybe he is a Neoplatonist. Mm-hmm. And maybe he is just a man on the rise a great rhetorician coming back to North Africa to win friends and influence people. A young man from the provinces. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> now coming back from the capital. Okay. Uh-huh. And he has to set some of that story straight just to be received and acknowledged as a religious authority if he is to become an abbot or, or, or a superior mm-hmm. of a religious group. And then he's, yeah, so he's having to set the story straight. So he's trying to take control of the narrative about himself, in which case, right, he is wanting people to, so then, so then this isn't just a a prayer journal or a diary. This is something that's more like a statement of who I am as understood by I don't know how how I became who I am. Story yeah. of a soul. 
story of a soul, and it is a continuous prayer. It's brilliantly done. And, uh, and who is it for? It's for people who can read the best Latin writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's for the people who count. Now, he also gives sermons. We have more th- still extant, more than mm-hmm. a million words of sermons, and we don't even have them all. Those are for people in church. Right. Confessions are for young men who are becoming priests, who are in the imperial bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, clergy, former friends. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's okay. That's the first audience. Okay. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, that makes sense to me up until about book 10. And then I think, you know, that's, that's when, as a reader, you feel like, okay, but this is a different book now. <laughs> like, like, maybe Augustine just had some thoughts about time, and he wasn't quite sure where to put them. So, so he put them in this or whatever. How, you know, how does this book, like, cohere as a whole? Okay, listen, there is a good answer to that. Uh, I'll give you the short one. The long one's more interesting, but it's this. The first, oh, you can give the long one. No, no but no, let's, let's do the short one first. Okay. The first nine books are a perfect meditation on the prodigal son. Beginning at the end of book one, the son leaves the house of the father to do his own thing, to become famous or to become rich or just to get out of Dodge. And he ends up in one bad situation after another. After another. In, in book two, he says, the sterile plantations of lust, which is just like the, the, the prodigal son goes to a land in which the pigs eat stuff better than he eats. All of that wandering of the prodigal son comes to a stop in book five when he crosses from North Africa to over to Milan to be, to meet Ambrose. He returns to the house of the father, but it's a new father, not his Roman father, Patricius, but to an ecclesial fo- follower. And so he's returned to the house of his father, and the, the father shows him what he has to do, which culminates in baptism. And that's the story. All is well with the prodigal son who is received. And in book nine, the the last of the biographical books, with his mother, he's reunited into a, a mystical Christian family, and they have a vision or almost a vision of God before she mm-hmm. dies. That's, mm-hmm. the, that's the son returning to the house of his father. Right. Right. And then there's a break, right? There's a break. And then it takes some more philosophical, theological turn. So So in book 10, it's just kind of a meditation on memory, right? Yeah, it's a meditation on, but it is a metaphysical meditation. Mm -hmm. It, it, It is really no longer autobiographical, really. Right. Okay, so here's how to explain this. The first the first nine books convinced the reader that Augustine really did have a conversion 
really did have was struck with the divine grace and became a humble man who took the waters of baptism. He lowered himself from from his career. By the way, he says in book nine, chapter four, his first sentence, I was to take the waters of baptism and finally be cured of the disease of rhetoric. So he's convinced the reader now he's not just a rhetorician or a, a, a power guy. That now positions him with credibility to interpret the scriptures. And what does he want to interpret? Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is how did it all begin? That uh, the God who made heaven and earth, where we all came from, how to interpret that. And in book 10, he's getting busy by saying, but I can find nothing in my memory that goes back to Genesis 1. I wasn't there. How do I know how this all began? I must rely upon the revealed word of God. And then 11, 12, and 13 are meditations on basically Genesis 1, raising questions of time, raising questions of created spirit, matter, and then just the the literal and allegorical meanings of every sentence of Genesis 1. So his life as a continuous prayer qualifies him now to do exegesis and philosophy about theological matters. Got it. His, well, I Yeah, his life is his PhD here. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have so many follow-up questions, but we're going to do an episode on those later books, so I'll just I'll just set them aside for now. That's very helpful. Is there anything else that you want to say about the structure as a whole before we dive headfirst into book one? One last thing. In his extant writings, and there's a lot of them, he is, scholars have actually done this work. He's, he quotes or cites scripture 41,000 times. Now, this is amazing for us because today, I venture to say no one knows scripture this way. Right. Okay. And remember, he was classically trained, so he had an exquisite memory. If you don't have a memory trained in grammar and logic moving to rhetoric, he actually learns the scriptures both by memorization and by reading. Right. And a million words of sermons, almost entirely on scripture. So, yeah, Augustine, Augustine teaches the reader how to learn scripture simply by listening to him. It's, it's, it's really a profound lesson of having the humility to ask the right questions and get the right scriptural answers to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, it is not apologetics, and, and, right. and, and it's not mere catechism either. It, right. it, it's a different kind of uh, genre of thinking about scripture altogether. In fact, he kind of invents it. Right. So when this... 
I mean, help help us understand. I mean, you say that he was finished writing it around 401. When does he die? He dies 430. Okay. As Hippo Regius is being besieged by vandals. Right. And the reason right. we have so many of his works uh-huh. is that he knew what was to follow. Because it was only shortly after he died that the city was ransacked and so forth. But because it was a port city, and he was a very famous Christian bishop, he got ships in which to pack all of his writings and take them to Italy. Right. So help us understand a little bit better kind of the publishing landscapes, obviously very different in the fourth century. When... When does the Confessions, as it were, get out to the relevant elites, and what is its reception? Yes, I I think we could say it's published 401, and it would have been written on various kinds of vellum or paper. So one of the problems in those days, so for instance, If you try to get a copy of The City of God, his last great work, which is in English translation about a thousand pages, okay, and remember, yeah, so about a thousand pages, you would have had to have had seven or eight people with wheelbarrows. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. This is why even in the Middle Ages, very few people had the entire city of God the way we do. You couldn't just throw it in your brief in your briefcase. Right. It was it was too long and maybe they they relied upon some other people's notes or summaries of various chapters. Mm-hmm. But but the confessions were smaller. Mm-hmm. And so the confessions was read. And Yes, there was a reading public. And was it well-received? I mean, was it a controversial text? Was it? No, not as controversial as what he gets into next. <laughs> yeah. Because, because it, well, you can, anyone reading it today can see how edifying it is. And edifying at so many different levels that I don't think it was deeply contested. But remember, it comes out just as he's become bishop, and his feet are in the fire right then, not because his past history so much, mm-hmm. but because of the Donatist controversy. And the Donatist right. controversy is the, the, the epicenter, is in that part of North Africa. So there's, contra- there's, there's a schism in the Christian church that he has to deal with. Right, right. Because, well, I mean, this is kind of the period of history within the church when you're just, it's like whack-a-mole beating various heresies. Which one was Donatism again? Oh, Donatism, during the Diocletian persecutions, this is 60 years before Augustine was born, but they were very severe in North Africa. And Christians were martyred. And there was a crackdown on Christianity generally, and the the Roman agents would go to churches and to monasteries as well, which exist in North Africa in the 290s. They, they ask for some token to be given to Caesar. It could be a coin, 
It could be a votive offering. Christians knew they couldn't do the the, the, the votive offering because it would have mm-hmm. been a pagan ceremony. But right. sometimes they would just give the Roman official a copy of their prayer book. Uh-huh. Or of the Missal or of the Mass or a copy of the Bible. Huh. Right? And the Donatists claimed that all of the bishops and perhaps even major clergy who did that are out of the church. Oh, okay. Are out of the church. They they defected and they elected their own bishop who was the Donatus, mm-hmm. who was in the sea up in that part of North Africa. And this this got uglier as time went on because, of course, they're arguing over who sinned so grievously that they sinned against the Holy Spirit. What were the processes for bringing the church back together? But the Donatists took much of the property. So by the time Augustine gets into this, this thing had been going for two generations. I see. And there was property at stake. I see. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, so should we should we jump into book one? Sure. Okay. So book one is kind of well. What's interesting to me about book one is first and foremost the very kind of opening paragraph of the Confessions, which when I teach this, I've probably taught the Confessions maybe four times. I always tell my students that. <laughs> insofar as there's like a main thesis here, it's set out, right, in this first paragraph, right? When he says, to praise you is the desire of man. You stir man to take pleasure in praising you because you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And it seems to me that the first nine books is sort of a story about Augustine's restless heart, kind of figuring out in what his fulfillment or rest actually consists. And it is kind of like his desire to know and to understand that's driving that, but he doesn't really quite know where to land until the very end. Right. Yes, in Latin, the inquieta animi, the restlessness of the soul. And he's going to have a lot of things to say about this because some of the restlessness is completely God-given and natural, which which you just quoted him saying. There's another kind of restlessness that is due to sin that's more like anxiety. It's more like the prodigal when the prodigal ends up in the sterile plantation feeding pigs who eat better than he does. But the first restlessness he speaks about is is natural. It's God given, mm-hmm. and right. even after sin, it's there. Mm-hmm. It 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 has strength, even mm-hmm. after sin. But you know, he also has another device here, right in that book one, section one, because he's a man of the ancient world. What are the two most famous stories of restlessness that any Greek or Greek-trained or Roman or Roman-trained 
boy would have known about restlessness. And the first would have been Homer's Odyssey, right? And which is a long trip with a kind of restlessness of both curiosity and tragedies and stuff. It's the whole story about trying to get home. But the mm-hmm. other one for the Romans is the Aeneid by Virgil. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's book one is setting up what almost immediately becomes his version of God's revelation about our restlessness mm-hmm. with his own life as the case in point. So you mean like setting out a distinctively Christian epic narrative as yep. opposed to the pagan ones? Yeah. Yeah. With with all kinds of allusions, by the way, in these first nine books to the yes. pagan ones. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The other thing that always struck me about book one is that the first, I don't know, are we calling them paragraphs or sections? What's the pro- <laughs> what's the proper terminology there, Russ? Yes, we can call them chapters. Oh, chapters. Okay. So then I, I would say book one, chapters one through five are structured as a series of questions, kind of philosophical and theological questions mm-hmm. that he's posing. And then it launches into, right. you know. A story. Talking, <laughs> talk, yeah, a story talking about when he was a baby and this sort of this sort right. of stuff. Yeah. So here are, here are the three questions. There's, there's more than three questions. But this is my handy device when I read or teach three questions. Who is my pater? Who is my father? Mm-hmm. By the way, this is crucial both to the Odyssey and the Aeneid. Who is my father? One. Two. Who will teach me to be a filius, that is, a son? A son has to learn who his father is and how to be a son, but who's to teach me who is my father and how to be a filius? And third, how do I return to the house of my father? How do I get back? To, not to paraphrase a Beatles song, but a much older theme. Mm-hmm. How do right. we get back? And right. all of these first nine books really are trying to answer those three questions. And they're often running at book one. Because the first thing he says about himself is that he's born, mm-hmm. but he doesn't remember being born. Right. <laughs> and he immediately starts talking about all of the problems of entering into the, how to put it, human culture, mm-hmm. in which getting true answers to who your daddy is are not so reliable. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. So book one, it's kind of like, I mean, students always find book one very strange. And I think that's just because it is sort of a strange endeavor trying to remember your infanthood. (laughs) No no one has memories of that. But then also he's so harsh about babies. Sort of how simple they are, and interpreting everything, interpreting a a human being's infant vulnerability as a sign of original sin. I think a lot of students struggle to understand why he takes that view. 
But eventually, you know, he gets to his boyhood and a lot of that has to do with his education, both in the sense of his formal education, it's kind of like what I was reading and why, and this is the first time that he has kind of and he, and he takes a dim view of it, it seems oh. to me. He casts a very critical eye upon it, especially epic poetry, it seems to me. So education in the formal sense, but then I would say education in the everyday sense of he's looking at who were the exemplars for him, right. especially the male role models, and he's finding them all wanting. Right. So, yeah, so a Roman... In answer to who is my pater, Julius Caesar explicitly answered, Mars, the god of war. That's my pater. Yeah. And he actually has his family descend from Mars's rape of the daughter of Venus. Who will teach me to be a filius? The state. Right. Rome. The city of Rome will teach me how to be a filius of Mars. And how do I get to the house of my father? 18 years old, join the army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, the, no he, he understands what he's up against. So the infants are interested. That story is very interesting. And the way I interpret it is this. It's part and parcel with his critique of his own education. Is that he tells the story of noticing two infants at the breast one of which is envious that the other infant is drinking, even though the first one has already had his fill. So whatever the envy is, it can't be due to hunger, right? I mean, we can't give a kind of social justice answer to this problem. (laughs) It it is what he will later call libido dominandi, Uh lust for dominance. Uh And in the case of envy, in the case of envy, there's only one way to solve envy. You've got to destroy someone or something. Mm -hmm. So envy is not just saying, oh, I would really like to have a Corvette just like you have, Mm -hmm. right? I crave having a Corvette like you. That's easily solved. Just get two Corvettes. Mm -hmm. But in envy, what is hated is the other just having it. And mm-hmm. you have to assert your dominance over the other. This is Cain, as, as Augustine will say elsewhere. Those two infants, we already see Cain going into the field to murder his brother. Mm-hmm. They're just too small to pull this off. Mm-hmm. And he asks this question. How does human culture handle this? Because it's obviously there before culture. Mm-hmm. It's antecedent yeah. to culture. Right. And he says, nursemaids, nursemaids say they have ways of dealing with this. And of course, what they do is they separate the infants and they're much stronger than the babies or the very young children. So they can handle Cain when he's three years old, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But then those kids have to be handed over to a stronger authority. And that's Mm -hmm. when he begins his consideration of his own education where especially the boys are trained in the language and it's all by competition. Mm-hmm. And here's, here's the secret. You use envy to solve the problem of envy. That is, you put your boys into a class 
with a teacher who's like a drill instructor, who, mm -hmm. who humiliates all of them. It's by humiliation from beginning to end, mm -hmm. and it motivates them to do better and to do better and to do better than their classmate. Mm -hmm. And when they act up, you whack them mm -hmm. the good old-fashioned way. And this is the Roman way, the Roman way of handling what they don't know to be sin, the, the almost immediate effect of, of, of original sin, which is murderousness and envy, is to manage it. The Romans are great at managerial things with the world. And yes. <laughs> the classroom for boys is the way to do it. And the mm -hmm. classroom of, of the army mm -hmm. in, in, in Republican Rome. Mm -hmm. And so how is it done? It's done by competition, competition and strict corporal punishment. Mm -hmm. And that's his education so that what the student most desires is not wisdom, rather to prevail over his fellow student. Right. And so the problem then with his very classical education. You know, Augustine himself, of course, is now part of the classical curriculum. But the problem with his classical curriculum wasn't necessarily that he was reading pagans, but that the whole enterprise was for the wrong end, namely for the sake of Satisfying the libido dominandi or for satisfying personal ambition rather than searching for wisdom and truth. Is that? Yeah, that's, that's a good summary. Yeah. And, you know, he criticizes his parents. I find the, the, the criticism of his parents to be most interesting. Well, it begins in book one in which he confesses that his mother wanted God himself to be Augustine's father rather than his natural father, Patricius. Yeah, they seem, I mean, they kind of seem to take a dim view of the dad. Well, well, I think of the whole domus. So uh, this is a, sca a potentially scandalous Christian critique of the Roman domus going on here. Because in number two, in book two, in three, chapter three, he criticizes his mother and father. He says of his mother, Yes, she was a Christian, but she was still lingering in the suburbs of Babylon. Mm -hmm. And he had even worse things to say about his father. And what, what is he criticizing? That they loved the kind of education he was getting. They mm -hmm. were sacrificing to mm -hmm. make sure that their son becomes rich, famous, and powerful. Right. And so Monica and Patricius wanted a bumper sticker that said, Augustine is an A-plus student, or is an honor roll student. <laughs> honor roll. <laughs> right. And someday he's going to rule our town. Yeah. Or he, well, he, uh, in fact, he's going to go much higher than that. But that, that even they don't understand, A, that the mind is for wisdom and communication of wisdom teleologically. That's its end. Right. And they don't even really understand the domus properly. Mm -hmm. Because the, the, the domus is to raise the children uh, with regard to those ends and to do so not just as an instrument, not just mm -hmm. as an instrument to success, mm -hmm. but to human flourishing. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, he, the Confessions is actually a conversion story of two people. Well, there's five or six big conversions in the Confessions yeah. with his friend. Yeah. But it's Augustine and Monica. Because book nine is all about Monica's final conversion. Mm-hmm. Because although Monica was a, a real Christian, she always wanted to go back to North Africa to be buried with her ancestors, which was mm-hmm. pagan. Mm-hmm. Definitely pagan. And Ambrose mm-hmm. criticizes her there in book six about some of her ancestral practices up in Milan when she goes up there to follow her son. And right before she dies, she says, I have no more need to go to North Africa. I am content to lay, to be buried just where I die. And Augustine has a long panegyric on his mother's sainthood by virtue of saying that. So it's both Augustine and his mother who mm-hmm. are the big conversions in the first nine books. And they mm-hmm. have to be converted out of what in Roman culture, domestically, militarily, educationally, was driven by the libido dominandi, mm-hmm. the drive to prevail over all others. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's a major theme. Mm-hmm. I mean, how did Augustine think that, you know, the empire and the church, like the tensions between them, did he think that could be smoothed out? I mean, I I guess I'm wondering, like, from a Christian perspective, how deep and thoroughgoing was that critique? Okay. His first understanding of that critique uh, was not Christian really. First, North Africa was always a problem child for the Roman Empire. Well, it was very rich, but North Africans were stubborn. I mean, the Roman imperial authority in North Africa had been contested, actually, for centuries. Mm -hmm. There was always another kind of civil war revolution coming out of North Africa. And even Mm -hmm. at the early stages of Christianity, the North African Christians were always controversial and rugged, Tertullian being one. So mm-hmm. he gets that out of a North African sensibility to begin with. It's not a smooth thing, this empire. The empire really does require libido dominandi. You've got to yeah, suppress a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But he also gets it from the Manichaeans who begin to arise at the be- at the end of book two into book three. Right. Now, the Manichaeans thought of themselves as a Christian religion uh, in which they were like, this is what attracted Augustine. Be- by the end of book two, Augustine is already describing himself as strung out, the being anxious, being in search of so many pleasures and kinds of status that he had no tranquility. Right. Okay. Right. So this is what the Manichaeans taught him. That, hey, we feel the same way. You know why all of us are lonesome all the time and restless? Mm-hmm. Why should we be lonesome, as Hank Williams said, if no one's lonesome for us? <laughs> right. There is someone who's lonesome for us. And it's called the one, some kind, sometimes called 
bethos, that is, a primordial existent being who exists in a heavenly pleroma in fullness, who exudes an potentially infinite number of eons, like light from the sun. And one of these eons named Sophia freaked out. And it was the solidification of female hysteria that created, finally, the material world and trapped souls and bodies. And they said, Augustine, you're right. Of course, you're studying Cicero, but you go around to all the whorehouses at night. In book three, he reports shagging a girl in the back of church, Mm -hmm. a Christian church. Mm -hmm. Sure, you find your life divided and restless. And so you've got to listen to our teaching. Son, you need to get out of your body. Mm-hmm. Right, this because is, they, they think that matter is evil, yeah. right? This is beam me up Scotty stuff. <laughs> and so, but back to your original question. See, the Manichaeans were very suspicious of the empire. Okay. They learned how to use its roads and to establish Manichaean communities and so forth. But listen, uh, ordinary political and social order for the Manichaeans is under the demiurgus, who is virtually the devil. It's mm-hmm. the is the evil principle. It's it's trapping souls and bodies and not uh, giving the proper word of salvation into pure mm-hmm. spirit. So the Manichaeans were also <laughs> against the empire. Let's say it this way. Right, right, they, right, they, right. They actually believed in physical transference out of the cosmos by the souls first going up to the moon. And then waiting for another planet to come by (laughs) and then jumping on it until they flip out of the material cosmos. That's not Rome. Rome doesn't want to conquer the spiritual domain. Rome wants to conquer your bodies. Right, exactly. Okay. Yes. Okay. So he was, (laughs) before Augustine ever became a theologian and a bishop, having to work out relations with the empire. Oh, I'll give you a third reason he was already on edge about this issue. Because as master of the chair, master of imperial rhetoric, what was his job in Milan to give speeches in praise of Roman conquest and arms? Roman arms are being praised. And he knew what he was doing. He was like people here in D.C. on K Street. Right. They, they, they were praising, uh, praising and condemning things simply for political effect and for status. Right. I mean, I guess sometimes it's really hard for me to understand why Manichaeism would be appealing. But one, I guess one way into this period of Augustine's life is that he's clearly a young man who struggles a lot with self-control. He's clearly a young man with very robust, (laughs) you know, the urges for bodily pleasure, but especially sex. I mean, he's, it's just something that he is not, and it, and it, it seems to engender in him a healthy amount of self-hatred. Uh, but he's, he's obviously just like this very passionate, passionately driven young man. And I can see how this kind of dualistic matter-hating philosophy m- might might get a grip with him. 
Let's talk about book two because book two is one of my favorite books because it has one of the most famous scenes in the confessions in it, which is the scene of Augustine stealing the pears. And this is, you know, interesting because, I mean, look, stealing pears isn't interesting in and of itself. I mean, as far as crimes go, it's just not that interesting. But what's interesting about it is Augustine's analysis of why he did it. And it wasn't because he was hungry. It wasn't because he even liked pears. He just wanted to do something wicked. So if you look at book two, chapter nine, he says, I had no motive for my wickedness except wickedness itself. It was foul and I loved it. I loved the self-destruction. I loved my fall, not the object for which I had fallen, but my fall itself. I was seeking not to gain anything by shameful means, but shame for its own sake. He goes on about this, how it wasn't, like, like he just wanted evil. It was, it's almost as if he's attracted to evil for its own sake. There's something weird about that, though, given Augustine's own commitments about evil, namely that evil's just a privation, <laughs> right, of right. some good that it belongs to something to have. And so, I mean, philosophically, theologically, it just raises a question, how can Augustine's analysis of his motives be correct if it looks like he is attracted to evil if evil's not real? And anyway, I love I love having these conversations with students, but I wonder I wonder what you take out of this scene and then just kind of say something about what you think its overall importance is in terms of the trajectory of the first nine books. Okay. Well, important. He is in a garden. Book two. He and his friends go out at night like vagrants in the suburbs of America do, like to do things like shoot out uh, car windows with BB guns and stuff like that. Yeah, they're out there. In the neighbor's house. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but they're in a garden. This is the important thing because mm -hmm. the resolution to book two, Pear Tree, is book eight, Confessions. When he retires to a garden again, you always want to pay attention when ancient writers generally speak of gardens, but especially Christian writers. Okay. So here he is now kind of enough of an adolescent that he, he oh, well, let's say he's capable of committing, really committing sin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So he and his friends go into the garden, not for the pleasure of the garden, not for the pleasure of stealing someone else's property so that you're hungry because they destroyed the pears mm -hmm. that they stole. Mm -hmm. But for libido dominante, to assert their control over the world. That's the garden. This is basically Genesis 3. Mm -hmm. Okay, This meditation mm -hmm. on Genesis 3. And so libido dominante is the lust to have control over being. And in this case, that of your friends too. 
because they kind of did it together like pirates or hell's mm-hmm. angels, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and what were they to get out of it? Not a garden, not more fruit. They were only to get out of it to to stand in front of one another as Lucifer stood in front of our first parents and say, here is the fruit. Mm -hmm. The fruit not being, of course, the thing to eat, but exerting control over the garden. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's that's the sin. Yeah. Do you think that Augustine really stole pears or was this just like, you know, a literary device on any old sin that he would have committed at that point in his life? Yeah, there there are always literary devices because, of course, Genesis never says anything about apples or anything like that. Because we know we know that what what that tree was was the knowledge of good and evil. Right. So that if you, it's the old thing that every child knows by about first grade. If you take away your friend's cookie or sandwich and lick it or eat it, it now belongs to you. You make it your own in some way, and that is yeah. the that is the allegory of taking control of creation from God. Uh-huh. Okay, so that's what that that pear tree story is about, and it's also he builds the prodigal son image into it because the prodigal takes his inheritance and wastes it in a in in what what he calls a wasteland, a distant land, and boy, he would like to have the pears back. Uh-huh. He, yeah. he was already being corrected, but so yeah, so the the companion passage structurally in the Confessions is Book Eight, the conversion, the Tola Lege, yeah. So he goes into a garden. His friend Olypius is just off stage. Yeah, he. Hears the the sing-songy voice of a youth. It's always been interpreted as an angel saying, "Tole leji, pick it up and read." And Augustine just happened to have a book of Paul's epistle to the Romans, but maybe not the whole book, but part of it. Mm-hmm. And he picked it up and put his finger. He did scripture cracking. Mm-hmm. Put his finger on it, and there, there was a, a message for him. You know, not to remain. In concupiscence, right. right? Right. And he took it as a word for him, and he begins weeping. The important thing, whenever Christian literature speaks of gardens or weeping, important things are going on. Mm-hmm. He, he, the, his first sign of conversion was he received the gift of tears. But he didn't have tears in book two. Right. He was just, I mean... What he got for doing that was just getting stressed out. Right. But, okay, so if if this scene with the pears is a meditation on the fall from Genesis, then that makes my worry about the attraction to evil for its own sake even worse because just because again of the commitment that one you know we're in some sense oriented to the good like everything that we do is in some sense ordered that way 
But then also this idea that evil doesn't have its own reality such that it couldn't itself be an object of attraction. Well, not just in itself, but we're talking about evil here, not as a thing like a pair or even the motorcycle club. Evil is rather a privation of something. It's a privation of something. And what is it a privation of? It's a privation of the will. Now, he's not going to figure this out until after he goes and meets Ambrose. And he doesn't really figure it out until book six and seven, just on the lip of the conversion book, book eight. But as Mm -hmm. a privation, it's this. I'll, I'll put it simply because he already has the terms at work in the first four books. There's, in this human restlessness, we can discern some restlessness that's good, that's really on track to its proper object. Okay. Mm-hmm. Other kinds of restlessness are always off track. He calls it the triplex sin. He gets it out of the first epistle to John, chapter 2. Pride, curiosity, and lust. And it's, and it's an empty circle. In pride, you regard yourself as the center of reality. That Everything else is a satellite to the self. In lust, you go out to other objects to conquer them, to bring them in, to enjoy them in prideful lust. And then the final movement is curiositas, which is the movement of the soul to anticipate the next move of prideful lust. That's what he calls the empty circle. It's not going anywhere, okay, mm-hmm. because you're trying to fill yourself up with yourself. Right. That's, that's how right. he describes it. Now, later he's going to have right. a better explanation of this, but the key philosophically is this. The distinction between the will as to will, which is like to make a choice. Mm-hmm. I think I'd rather have iced tea. Mm-hmm. We'd call Librum Arbitrium. That is free choice. Okay. Mm -hmm. I choose this rather than that. Even a heroin heroin addict can say, no, I choose to remain sober today. I choose that rather than this other thing. That's why even the the effect of sin does not completely cancel out freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. The problem is another level of the will, a deeper level, which he calls to be willing. So, for example, once upon a time, the wife comes in on Tuesday night and says, will you take out the trash? Every Tuesday night, it has to be put out onto the street. Mm -hmm. And suppose I say, are you asking whether or not I will choose to take the trash out? Or are you asking whether I'm willing to do so? The answer Mm -hmm. is, I've never been willing to do so. That's why you've had to ask me every Tuesday night for 20 years. But I'll muster up a bit to do Mm -hmm. that. So Mm -hmm. Augustine finds these two aspects of the will, choice and the underlying tide of, well, let's call it love, what you're Mm -hmm. really willing to do, are at war with each other. That's, That's the sign of sin, and it's an absence in the will of what belongs there, which is the harmony of choice and willing. Right. It it would be like the harmony of someone who obeys the law, but they also have virtue. So they do so quickly. 
and easily, even joyfully. Right. Okay. Right. Right. That's Having what Augustine's all that's what he's getting at in these early books of the confessions, although he's using the terms pride, curiosity, and lust, which is another mm -hmm. way to tackle the same issue. Mm -hmm. And so in, in book three, when he's in his most corrupt stage in the big city of Carthage. Right. He's a student in Carthage in book three. Yeah. And he's acting like a student in Carthage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And he reads Cicero's Hortentius. Right. A classical text that doesn't exist today. What we know about it is people like Augustine giving report of it. But apparently mm -hmm. it was a Ciceronian oration to wisdom, pursuit of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And Augustine mm -hmm. says, and I began to read it and I felt myself rising like my soul being gathered and going upward. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, not too much later, here I am back, you know, acting acting like a very intelligent juvenile delinquent in Carthage. Right, right. Well, yeah. he, he makes he may talks a lot about his pride and his conceit in yeah. book three, but he also makes this contrast between the mind's understanding versus the flesh's perception. And obviously for him, these are not uniting. Um, and he's sort of, I mean, it, kind of my takeaway from book three is, you know, in addition to just even more unhappiness with his education, but just sort of a general sense of his need for humility and discipline and that the turn towards wisdom is good but unless it is tempered by humility, like it's not, no. not actually going to be good. Right. That's what he says that the classical authors, his favorite was, of course, Cicero, but mm -hmm. also the Platonists who he meets later in Milan, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they taught him a lot. They taught him more than anyone else up to that point had taught him. But what they didn't taught him, that the way up is down, he says. This is, this is in book seven, finally. They never taught me that to arise, prodigal arise, turn around and go back to the house of the father. To go up, pursuit of wisdom, is to become humble. No one taught him right. that. Right, yeah. right, yeah. Because I don't think I don't think classical education was designed <laughs> to communicate that. So book four, you know, book four involves this friendship that he has. There's, he has a friend who dies, and it it seems to me that the that the two main things in book four besides all the stuff about Manichaeism, which we can talk more about that if you want, or sort of the friend who dies and, and sort of what Augustine takes out of that. And then also, once again, you find this kind of critique of his miseducation or what he perceives as his miseducation. 
And I don't know if those two are related. <laughs> like the mm. what happens with the friend and the miseducation. And of course, this is when he also, you know, introduces the fact that he has a concubine. Yes. And a son. Yeah, does he? Yeah, so. A Deodatus. Like, yeah, so is this, is, is he that young when he has a child out of wedlock? Well, let's say he's born, he's born in 354. He's in Carthage post 371. So, yeah. He's, he yeah. can certainly father a son. Well, he's he's oh. sort of very sly about it because he's like, this is book four, the end of the second chapter. In those years, I had a woman. She was not my partner in what is called lawful marriage. I had found her in my state of wandering desire and lack of prudence. Nevertheless, she was the only girl for me and I was faithful to her. With her, I learned by direct experience how wide a difference there is between the partnership of marriage entered into for the sake of having a family and the mutual consent of those who love is a matter of physical sex and for whom the birth of a child is contrary to their intention, even though if offspring arrive, they compel their parents to love them. I mean, I guess that's the acknowledgement yeah. that he had a kid out of wedlock. Yeah. Whose name <laughs> was a day yeah. Well, you know, doesn't the, quite the, say it in so many words, yeah. but implies it. Right. Well, eventually, Adeodatus ends up in Italy with him, and Adeodatus yeah. mm-hmm. on for the vigil mass of Easter, three eighty seven, takes the waters of baptism with his father. Mm-hmm. But very curious now, the name of the concubine is never mentioned. No, just a woman. I mean, Monica, Monica was against her from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And she kept on uh, hassling Augustine to, to put her aside because she was not good for his career. Right, right, right. I but mean, we never... I think he really loved her. What do you think? Yes. Although, did he love her in the way that a, a Roman official, because he does soon become a Roman official, someone uh-huh. who is someone who has Romanitas in the civic community. Mm-hmm. Does he love her that way? Well, without the children, probably not, because mm-hmm. uh, the children are very important to that more Roman sense of civic order as opposed to simply sexual intercourse which is which can be done with slaves and others so well, i don't know just for the sex i don't see why he would have been faithful to her well obviously there was something more than sex there was a relationship that persisted over time right but what's interesting though is that he never mentions her name and there's all he's naming all sorts of people in this story his friends and so forth. But of course, when he's writing this in the 390s, this is exactly the thing he couldn't put into the book. But don't you think maybe that was to protect her? I People have suggested that. that. I'm I'm saying that someone who's coming to found a monastery 
No, you just don't. You don't want anyone to track her down. <laughs> uh, fair. I mean, I mean even even before <laughs> Twitter. And there's been there have been suggestions that she went to a monastery to a convent, but of course he doesn't. No, he, mm-hmm. she just she just drops out of the story. Mm-hmm. But that is an interesting thing to raise on route to the dying friend in four, because they are they are both examples of his meditation on human friendship under the effect of the triplex sin of pride, curiosity, and lust. Mm-hmm. They they are not per se evil. Mm-hmm. They 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 don't lack some honest natural aspects of friendship. Mm-hmm. So for instance example, the friend in book four, Augustine says, he was my other self. Mm-hmm. Or we were yeah. each other's other self. Well, that's what a, that's that's what a true friendship is. Right. That's why, in a, as Aristotle would say, a true friend, and you, he got this through uh, Cicero, a true friend doesn't need justice because a true friend already is justice. That right. is, it is it is not another to whom something has to be given. Right. We are one in some profound way. Okay. Right. And so he says all these things about his relationship to the friend. And remember, Augustine is not baptized yet. And he kind of blames this now a bit on his mother. His mother, with regard to the concubine, too, that, well, just let Augustine sow all of his oats. Mm -hmm. And then when he takes baptisms, they're all immediately, all these sins are immediately remitted, right? Mm, Okay. And but it's a gamble. Of, it's a gamble. And so this, the, the friend gets sick and is clearly dying. Mm-hmm. And Augustine's going to his friend and weeping and so on and so forth. And the, the friend says, I am going to take the waters of baptism. And Augustine says, no, 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 you might get better. Right. He's right. trying to prevent his friend. Yeah, he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. He's really guilty on that score. And, well, the friend made the right choice. Undoubtedly, under sanctifying grace, he was moved to, or actual grace, he was actually moved to make this move, and he dies. And Augustine goes into a tailspin. It's a very interesting disquisition on uh, friendship and grief, on, and, and on grief. Mm-hmm. But he says something very interesting in book four on this. He says, I, I just couldn't get out. I, I, I was miserable. I felt as though part of my own self had died. Nothing made me happy. No, nothing else I did. And then he says, but gradually, I came out of it because my other friend said, look, you'll get another friend. <laughs> Listen, hum, human life just rolls on uh-huh. And you can, you know, you can take a cruise down in Florida and uh, on, on on a luxury liner and find another one. It's, it was that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Augustine, he said, and he says, and that's where I was ex- I was exposed. This is a quotation to the vast myth and long lie of Babylon. 
by which he means human beings after Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What he meant by the vast myth and the long lie is that we see things really going wrong. We see our own moral deficiencies, the moral deficiencies of our friends. We see death. We see treacheries. We see all these things. And what do we tell ourselves? Well, we're not sure to tell ourselves, but the culture is going to tell us something. Mm-hmm. It'll all go away. Hey, listen, just yeah. like those nursemaids, just like those nursemaids with the infants at the breast, mm-hmm. we've got ways of taking care of this. Hey, listen, we will chip in some denarii and get you a, I mean, a cruise over to Egypt. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what, and, and Augustine says, and that did for a while relieve him. That is a completely intramundane, imminent cure for what he was already discovering about human life. Mm-hmm. It, it was like a, a Manichaean one, except it was intramundane and much more plausible. Yeah, there's this really great line where he says, and he's kind of speaking to himself, but he says, you seek the happy life in the region of death. It is not there, right? I mean, he's just like kind of trying to slowly starting to realize that, you know, his happiness isn't in anything that is of this life, no matter how good it is, whatever is of this life is not permanent, not something that is capable of fulfilling capacities that are spiritual, right? that are infinite in their orientation. And of course, then he discovers, by the way, his meditation on love in book four after the death of the friend is just classic. It needs to be paired with, like a good wine needs a really good cheese. The Mm. good cheese is City of God book 14 on the love that (laughs) at No, it really is. The love that Adam Adam and Eve would have before sin. Yeah. So those are the two master works of Augustine on what could be called the erotic and the the, the whole condition of love. Right. And he compares love, he says, love that tries to stop itself is not a solution to the problem. That is, if you try to stop the order of time and the order of desire, you're, you're actually killing love because in the creature, love for your final end, even if you don't know its name, is always leading desire ahead, always leading desire ahead. If you try to restrain it, you would kill love itself, which is a good thing. And it's, it's a beautiful meditation, and he uses the example of saying the Psalms, which by then he's already saying because he's already has a proto-monastic community, so mm-hmm. they're saying them. He says, you say the Psalms, and they keep coming back around and back around, and by the time you get to the end of one verse, another one starts, and he says, we should consider our lives as like rolling up the time of our lives like the Psalms, There's a unity if you keep going in them. There's a unity. Mm -hmm. 
and it's redemptive time of some kind. Mm-hmm. Not, it, it is not time as a prison, but a kind mm-hmm. of redemption. Well, rolling up his life like a psalm then becomes, from book four, becomes the counterpart in book eight in his conversion. Mm. He just he describes his life as being rolled up mm. in scripture, and he's mm. ready for baptism. Yeah. Yeah, so I just want to flag for our listeners book four, chapters 14 and 15, and yeah, 14 and 15 as sort of the deepest meditations in this chapter on well-ordered love, properly ordered love. So it's worth going back to. Let's, for the sake of time, let's, let's deal with book five. And then we will break for another episode dedicated to this book. But book five is, to me, book five is about the contrast between yeah. Faustus and Ambrose. Exactly. As sort of like two competing father figures. Mm-hmm. And, and book five is also, as you mentioned earlier, it's like a turning point in the book, right? right? When he right. goes from the wrong father figure to the correct one. So maybe just walk us quickly through book five. Okay. So book five is what we call the chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device in which you, the story kind of begins again with new data. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It crosses over. Mm -hmm. So here we have Augustine in Carthage and all of the events we talked about having happened He still has questions for the Manichaeans, and the Manichaeans keep on putting him off, saying, when Faustus comes to town, the Manichaean bishop, he'll explain everything. All of our astronomical theology, all the questions you have about transference of souls to the edge of the cosmos, all these kind of things. Faustus comes to town, all right, and he has no answers to any of these. In fact, he wants to hire Augustine to be his tutor in Latin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Faustus turns out to be like the Beverly Hillbillies from the eastern part of the empire. <laughs> yeah, 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 he's a bit unimpressive. He's a bit unimpressive. <laughs> and so now he, his, his dissatisfactions are mounting and mounting. Anyway, book five is the book of three cities. It begins in Carthage where his youth is kind of summed up in Carthage. It's the time in Carthage. And it holds nothing for him anymore, neither the Manichaeans nor the schools. He's, he's basically already gotten his, quote-unquote, degree in rhetoric. He's ready to be a rhetorician. The second city is Rome. He decides without telling his mother to simply get on a boat and go across the Mediterranean, just like Aeneas in the Aeneid who comes to North Africa, has a sexual affair with Dido, the queen, and then leaves the queen, and they go to Sicily and then to Latium, to to Rome. He is like Aeneas going across, and he gets to Rome. He doesn't like Rome because the dirty little secret of this he got a job in a Manichaean prep school. He had just left the Manichaeans, but he's using their connections mm-hmm. in Rome. 
the students will not pay him after his lessons. Mm-hmm. And he says, enough <laughs> of this. And another Manichaean connection in uh, Milano is a Manichaean also who gets Augustine the appointment of Master of Imperial Rhetoric. So the three cities are Carthage, Rome, and Milan. And of mm-hmm. course, they, they all symbolically are, are representing something. Certainly mm-hmm. Milan is the new parochia, the new family, and the mm-hmm. pater is Ambrose. Mm-hmm. And around Ambrose, Augustine has new brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. He, he meets a group of connected young people, intellectuals, functionaries in the Roman government, philosophers. So he finally understands someone to go to to ask the question, how to get back to my father. And yeah, it's, so, a, yeah, sorry, it's Augustine's preaching that does it. Do you mean Ambrose's preaching? I mean, or, I mean yeah. Ambrose's preaching, yeah, yeah, to be yeah. sure. Yeah, so by the end of book five, he decides to become a catechumen. And, I mean, that what what is the kind of major impetus of that? Is it just his dissatisfaction and disillusion with Manichaeism, like he's just kind of finally realizes that this isn't providing any substantive answers, or is there something else? Well, is it really the figure of Ambrose that is yeah, attracting so you, him to the church? Absolutely. It's, it's God's grace. And he, this is what Ambrose does for Augustine, besides the fact that he is now a spiritual father. Ambrose teaches him the beauty of the scriptures. And this beauty is manifest in two ways. First of all, Ambrose had a beautiful liturgy in which the Psalms and scriptures were chanted, you know, in choir. And Augustine says they were so beautiful that he never knew such a thing existed. Later on in the Confessions, he will say, it was so beautiful that sometimes his prayer is disturbed by it because he's thinking more of the beauty than of the substance. But scripture presented beautifully by human voice and choir. The second was Ambrose's sermons, in which Ambrose used the, the full resources of Catholic scriptural exegesis, distinguishing the literal meaning of scripture from its allegorical meaning, that is, where things in the Old Testament are signifying the coming of Christ, mm-hmm. from mystical meaning, purely mystical meanings, what he calls anagogical, where parts of Scripture are telling us what will happen, basically, as reported in Genesis 22. Mm-hmm. That is, glory, mm-hmm. you know, where mm-hmm. Jesus meets his bride in heaven. Right. And Augustine apparently had not heard of these things Hmm. and began to see how the Manichaeans were reading everything literally. Mm -hmm. Right. And making a mess of things. Right. And it was also just sophisticated enough literary treatment that it impressed Augustine, who was well-trained by this point. 
Actually, actually, Augustine could take what Ambrose taught him and begin to discover for himself. Mm -hmm. And finally, the example of Ambrose. It's not mentioned until the very beginning of Book 6, but Augustine goes into Ambrose's study, and Ambrose is reading Scripture silently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that Augustine understands right away that me, what it means. It means it's wisdom. Mm -hmm. That is, the sounds, the words, the marks on the page are cud that we chew for the sake of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And therefore, it can be prayer. Yeah, I mean, one thing that really strikes me about book five is that he's meditating a lot on the true nature of wisdom. And in book five, chapter eight, he uh, cites Job. And so translations on this vary. Some of them say piety is wisdom. Some of them say awe is wisdom. But he has this kind of meditation on what, I don't know, true wisdom is. But at some point he says, it is awe or piety to make a confession to you. Right. And so and the that, reason... That really struck me for obvious reasons. Yes. So a confession to confess is to abdicate self-will and accept the will of another or to find self-knowledge only through knowledge of the other and then to give voice to that very thing. Mm -hmm. So when the prodigal, when the prodigal stands up and says, I will return unto the house of the father, he confesses. He, con he confesses. When Job, at toward the very end of all of his miseries, remains pious, piety, mm -hmm. that is, he acknowledges that none of his miseries are comparable to the greatness of God and confesses that. Mm -hmm. That's what confession means. Uh, and it means this, the soul being made unto the image and likeness of God. Images have to be turning things. The function of an image is to mirror its prototype. An image that doesn't turn, turn the mind itself toward the prototype, is, is simply not an image. It would be like a mirror that you can't see anything in. Mm -hmm. So turning things can either turn, spiritual turning things, they either turn back unto themselves which is what Augustine's describing in the triplet sin, the first mm -hmm. four books, or it's turning to its father and right. maker. Right. And so this is why Job is so important, because he will go on, by the way, in the city of God and in com biblical commentaries, to go so far as to say our main model in the Old Testament is Job, and he wasn't even a Jew. He was just this character that appears in the literature, but famously does what Adam does not do. Adam mm -hmm. does not listen to God rather than his wife. Job, <laughs> listen, uh, 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 Job listens to God rather than the wife. But uh -huh. Gustin goes so far as, as, to, as to believe that Job is one of the elect 
in some kind of glory even before the resurrection. Hmm. Some hmm. kind of glory even before hmm. the resurrection. Hmm. Because of the because of the piety to confess. Now, one meaning of confession is to look for the Roman mind. Mm-hmm. Is to stand up when you become a male as an adolescent and you take the toga and you stand up and raise your hand with two fingers and take the sacramentum to mm. the city. Mm. You confess. Okay. Mm. I'm yours. Right. That's why some people have said, I'm, I've never been able to track down the truth of this, that the original Pange Lingua, Gloriosa, Pange Lingua, Gloriosa, yes. was a Roman marching song. Really? Sing my tongue, the glory. Mm. Well, the glory of Caesar or of Rome. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what the initiate, making the sacramentum, pledges to the city. Mm-hmm. But the Christian sacramentum is not to confess that. Right. It's it's to confess salvation by Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's 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 more like Billy Graham mm-hmm. than Caesar here. Mm-hmm. Come and confess to confess. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he calls this whole book confessions. Of course, he had already confessed. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, when he takes the water of baptism and takes the bap baptismal oaths right which are the christian version of oaths to the city mm-hmm. it's, it's oaths to the kingdom of christ and uh the confessions is now his confession of his whole story that's mm-hmm. why everyone is addressed to god mm-hmm. because if it were just addressed to you and i reading it now it wouldn't be the right kind of confession right it would be like Prince Harry, <laughs> you see. And it's not that. <laughs> I haven't read Spare, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and suggest that St. Augustine's Confessions is a better use of your time. Well, Russ, it's been an hour and 40 minutes. So I think on that very important last note on confession, we should say until next time. Yes, yeah, we can go out and get some pears for lunch. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, Russ. See you next time. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. Special thanks goes to Will Dethridge, Joe Coleman, and Bea Quasi for all of their work in editing and producing this podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash to become a monthly patron. Our patrons enjoy many benefits like tote bags and coffee mugs and stickers with exclusive sacred and profane love artwork. But you can also get a free digital subscription to either The Lamp or The Point magazines if you support us at $10 a month. I'd like to thank our friends at The Lamp and The Point for underwriting our Patreon page. If you want to learn more about either of these magazines, please visit thepointmag.com 
or thelampmagazine.com. And please don't forget to give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other platform you use to listen to this podcast. That helps us to curry favor with our algorithmic overlords. And also, please don't forget to tell your friends and family that they should definitely listen. So for our next episode, I will continue the conversation about the confessions with Russ, and we will tackle books six through 10. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading. Thank you.